What's up, gang? Welcome back to another episode of the Tech in Shanghai podcast. Before we get going today, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this show. We've been receiving more and more interest in the show, and just wanted to say thanks for all your recommendations to friends, retweets, feedback, etc. It really spurs us on to keep trying to book solid, interesting guests for you guys who can continue to help us tell the amazing story that is the current technology and startup landscape in China. If you really like the show, a short review and rating on iTunes would be much appreciated. Anyways, on to today's show. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Vivi Hu, Chief Strategy Officer for eBay Greater China. Vivi is also an angel investor through the AngelVest Group, a former entrepreneur, a Harvard grad, and a soon-to-be-published author. I invited Vivi on the show so she could share with us her perspective on the role of "quote-unquote" grandfather technology companies in the current ecosystem. And soon realized I would be getting much more. Vivi had some fascinating insights on the differences between Chinese and Western tech entrepreneurs, some very practical advice for pitching angel investors, and tops it all off with a few words of wisdom from her new book on how to build habits for a healthy, productive, and balanced life. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Vivi, and hopefully you will too. Welcome to the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the pearl of the Orient. Shanghai is the city of the future. All systems go full steam ahead. It never stops. Technology, innovation, ambition—it's everywhere. Join us as we explore this new world and talk to the people making it happen. The Tech in Shanghai podcast. The future is now. So, Vivi, thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks for inviting me for the show. No sweat. So,、pleasure. before we get going into kind of your story and、uh, the career you've had and the certain things you've learned throughout that career, can you maybe tell us how you got to where you are right now? Kind of the story leading up to now. Like my past bio. Yeah, you don't have to go too in too much detail. But, but、uh, I think I started as consultant, a strategy consultant, right?、Mm. And in between my consulting career, I went to Harvard Business School.、Um, So I think I learned a lot about entrepreneur at that time.、Mm-hmm. Uh, it really opens my mind about what you can actually do in your life. It's not just getting employed, right?、Mm-hmm. So that's why、um, when I come back to China after business school in a couple of years, I actually quit the job and started my own ventures.、Mm-hmm. And I did a couple of different, very different type of business model,、uh, including like retail and trading.、Um, part of it is e-commerce, and also、um, strategy and. Financial advisory, and also Miss Universe,、uh, which is very. That's something I want to ask you about later. Yeah. Yeah,、uh, and then、um, I think、um, so. After a couple of years,、uh, I've been doing the ventures myself. I sold one of my business, and I was thinking about what's my next step. And then I got involved in private equity buyout,、mm-hmm. uh, distressed assets management,、um, and then I got approached by headhunting.、Um, Friend,、um, and then they think I should try out the corporate executive path, right? So I look at eBay; it's very interesting business model,、mm-hmm. like especially I'm interested in tech and the、uh, platform business,、mm-hmm. and I believe this is the future of the world.、Um, and eBay is very robust business model, right? Like starting very early.、Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been with eBay for two years now. Very exciting, actually. Interesting. Nice. That was a really quick summary of, yes, of I'm sure, a、is. lot of work and,、uh, and many years of, of your career. So, we had、um, Jennifer Shu on the show a little、uh, while back. Yes. And of course, she's a Harvard alum as well,、yeah. and she gave us her story. And I mean, can you first comment on? There seems to be 
how should I say this, comment on the role of returning Chinese that have gone abroad and yeah. gotten high-end educations and are now coming back and doing what seems to be, from my experience, you know, really amazing, really, really great things here in China. Can you kind of comment on that phenomenon that's going on right now? So like, why are all these people coming back or? Yeah, maybe, wherever, you know, maybe you go into your own motivations. Like you went for that education, what is, was it always your plan to come back or did you consider staying in the US for, you know, a certain part of your career? What made you come back as soon as you did? Um, well, at the time I was dating someone, that's the reason <laughs> I come back, right? So, um, but, but it's part of the reason why I want to come back is mm. also I see, right, if you go to business school, you will always want to be in the top management career path, right? Mm -hmm. It's relatively easier for you to achieve that. And also you have, um, I would say, more competitive advantage comparing that you stay in U.S. or Europe, right? Um, and the, the, the majority of the reason that I come back is largely for personal reasons, mm -hmm. right? But, um, but later, like, I personally want to be a more globalized and international executive in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So even for now, I'm doing lots of international, not only traveling, but also like social circles and the jobs that, that I do are very internationalized. Mm -hmm. um, I would say um, from my perspective, I'm actually agnostic where I would be, right? If it's not for personal reasons or this and that. Um, but lots of people come back really is because they think they have certain advantage here in China. Because if you are competing in a management role, right, you know much less about the culture in the States, how to manage people, mm -hmm. their mentality and everything. Sure. You have much more advantage here. Yeah. So if you are very goal-oriented of achieving something, right, um, your career path or being very successful as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. you definitely would come back because you know the market much better. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're a part of or chair of the Harvard alumni community here, is that right? Yes, I'm very active. So I've been the president of the Harvard Business School Alumni Club here. Mm -hmm. That's uh, Jennifer and I worked it together. Right. Right? So, and then I'm currently on board of both Harvard and Harvard Business School Alumni Club here. Right. Yeah. And is that a, a large club? Are there a lot of Harvard graduates here in yeah. Shanghai and in China? Yes, yeah. there I are hundreds of them. I would think there would be, yeah. Yes. And I presume that they're all doing uh, they're, they're, they're highly involved in the different industries and communities that they, they work in, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty elite crowd. Yeah. So it's got to be a good, good network to maintain yeah. as well. I think the business school is quite uh, focused. Mm -hmm. It's all about venture capital, private equity, corporate, right? Really? But the university is much, much more diversified because you have graduate school of science and arts, right? Like some people study philosophy, politics. Right. They're very, in very different and do you um, notice sectors. any any trends of, of the people that are returning with those great educations yeah. um, and networks and coming back? Is there a particular, you just mentioned private equity and, and finance, yeah. are there particular industries where most people like to leverage their education and come back and work in? So for business school, definitely lots of people go into investment sector, right? right? This is how, or consulting or banking. Right. This is the sector that are willing to pay the premium, uh -huh. right, for um, MBA graduates. Mm -hmm. Um, but for university, more and more people are actually coming to China looking for opportunities at, as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, but business school is changing as well, right? You, you see from me and also Jennifer, and we actually see more people from business school coming back because we're in the age of internet and technology. Mm -hmm. So lots of social enterprises, right, platform business, which can enable more opportunities for individuals to mm -hmm. be an entrepreneur. And also the economics make sense mm -hmm. and also there's much much lower risk 
Yeah. Uh, um, so I think you see people change. Like I, I would see there are a higher proportion of even HBS graduates coming back and be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, is that because the scope of possible opportunities um, and possibi possibilities in terms of what they can get involved in is, is broadening, is growing? So it, whereas before, maybe it only made financial sense or maybe it was only a, a, a narrower, uh, you know, group of opportunities of working opportunities and now as you said with the growth of the technology industry and the growth of various industries and of course the greater macroeconomic story that is China at the moment that these graduates are feeling like you know kind of the world is their, their oyster mm -hmm. when they come back to China they, they have all sorts of opportunities yeah I think uh, it's because in the past five or ten years mm -hmm. right lots of things have evolved first of all the value system of Chinese community is changing as well. Really? Before it's all about money, right? right. But now we see it's still lots very <laughs> money oriented, but still we see an increasing trend of people are pursuing things mm -hmm. beyond money, right? right? They're pursuing personal uh, fulfillment, mm -hmm. right? Having an impact or changing the world. Yeah. Even uh, the HBS, right? When they have expectation on the students, it changes as well. Mm -hmm. It used to be like lots of like money making and then general management, and now it's about changing the world impact the society. Mm -hmm. You see the change uh, on the school side as well, and as well as from the students side. Which is awesome, isn't it? Yes, it's so great that, it, that right? that's happening. Yeah. And, and like you, sorry to interrupt, but with, with, with China, China had a very strong financially oriented exactly. uh, society, right? Yeah. Whereas, you know, maybe in the US for, an, for a longer period of time, there was more like a social uh, enterprise and altruistic underlying motivation along with the financial motivation but for in China for so long it was you know get that money you know to be rich is glorious sort of thing and yeah. having been here for the last uh, four years it's so great to see that this you is feel the change yeah, well, right? yeah yeah you can see it and and as you mentioned also whereas previously the main priority was you know financial get rich etc now and even the statistical reports coming out by um, organizations like Who Run and, and others mm -hmm. are saying that in fact now the number one on the the list of people that are already wealthy and such is like a either wellness or is altruism or spirituality mm -hmm. or you know things that are beyond just financial motivations. Yeah, exactly. So it's great to see. It's also because uh, partially the economic development of China, right? Mm -hmm. People feel more secure yeah. about where they are. Sure. And then you see the middle class is um, burgeoning in yeah. China, right? So people feel more secure. Mm -hmm. So they're like, life is much better, right. infrastructure is better. Uh, so once you have all these cover like healthcare, right, housing, everything, then you have the luxury of pursuing something of course, beyond yeah. a monetary goal. It's kind of like the hierarchy of needs, right? Like, yeah. of course, if you have nothing, if healthcare, if you don't have access to healthcare, if you don't, if you can't send your children to get a good ed education, if you can't have a comfortable living, then of course those are going to be priorities before you think about being a philanthropist or yeah. you know doing things to help other yeah. people. So I, I don't, I certainly don't begrudge or blame what was the case here before. Yeah. But I do, again, I just think it's great that now it it's is. beginning to change. And so many people like yourself that I meet in China who are educated, who are successful, are looking at these things and saying, you know, there's other things we can be doing with exactly. our time, with our resources, with our network, and, and it's great. And so I guess what you're saying is a lot of people that are, that are graduating from Harvard and that are coming back are bringing that mentality yeah. with them. And now they have the ability to 
to kind of exercise that mentality. And also, uh, I think the third reason is also the infrastructure is mm -hmm. there, right? Uh, if 10 years ago, I think it would be hard for someone to open up um, not not just roofing, right, mm -hmm. but also domestic company, right? right? And also the tax or payments, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, professional services who can do your accounting, right? Who can provide services is very limited. Yeah. So it's very hard to be an entrepreneur. You basically need to be very resourceful dealing all the hassles yourself. Mm -hmm. But now I think it's much easier, right? You can easily set up an office, you can easily register a company, you can have someone deal with your taxes. Mm -hmm. You can be a very light company, right? Very light business model, have lots of things outsourced. Mm -hmm. So this is the model that we're evolving, right, in China as well. So you have access to all these resources, so you can focus on what you're doing mm -hmm. instead of worrying about all the hassle things. And if we can extend that a little bit further, what do you see as the result of that, because I, I agree and I see that as well, that the infrastructure has developed and, and made it easier for entrepreneurs or people that want to do social enterprises and things like that. You know, what do you see that turning into, if, if you have any vision of that? Well, I, I would say the, the, the reason I joined the platform business mm -hmm. is I see the value of it, right? So if you see eBay, Uber, Airbnb, and all these platform business mm -hmm. is about facilitating enable entrepreneur behavior, right. right? Each of us can be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, even you have a full-time job, you can still be an Uber driver or eBay seller. Mm -hmm. um, so I will see in the future, the world is gonna be much more democratized in terms of who provides services, mm -hmm. who's the customer, right? So everyone could be an entrepreneur themselves. Mm -hmm. They have much more say in the economic um, not incentive, the economic structure of how they live their life. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the proportion of entrepreneurs in China would be exploding yeah. probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, China already has an extremely entrepreneurial spirit, yeah. which to the rest of the, to the outside world, that may be a surprise to hear because of course, in Western media, you hear about the type of government that exists here and you know, yeah. you think it's a, the economy is controlled in certain ways, and there's some truth to that, but the truth that I think gets uh, missed a lot of the time is that, you know, and I've traveled all over the world, I've never seen, as a, as a society, as a group of people, um, a, a people that are more entrepreneurial in spirit, you yeah. know, it's like it's in their blood than Chinese people, and you, yeah, exactly. you take a trip to any one of the markets in Shanghai, and you'll, you'll learn yeah. that very quickly. I think China people has the spirit of um, like merchants, right? Like right. especially in Shanghai, yeah. it's, a, it's an open harbor. It's like people in UK. Mm -hmm. They're very used to the merchant and trading type of mentality. Yeah. So everyone's looking for opportunities. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, like uh, there was a friend who was telling me, right? So they were saying uh, right now the ideal. Yeah. Now it's better. <laughs> um, so the ideal way of living right now is that. Uh, you, although you have a full-time job, right, that mm -hmm. you are an Uber driver when you go to work mm -hmm. at noon, right, when you're having lunch or go back home, right? Mm -hmm. So you take different rides and then you lease out your spare room at home <laughs> on Airbnb mm -hmm. and then you trade some A stock at that time when the stock market is still doing great, right? Yeah. That means you can be self-sustaining even without your full-time job. Yeah, right? it is, it, I mean, it's a really cool, you know, it's, it's interesting to think of things like that. And again, we're just getting started with these platform businesses, as you mentioned. So in the next five, 10 years, who knows? I mean, everyone could become little economies, mm -hmm. you know, like everyone is their own little economy. Yeah. It does make me think like where, 
then down the line is the value being created, you know, if everybody is leveraging these different services. But, I, you know, I think it's far beyond my small mind to figure out right now, and I think it'll, the solution will materialize as things develop. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about is being involved in a company like eBay, obviously one of the, you know, huge success stories of the dot-com era, you know, and has been a, a foundational a company in the kind of technology scene ever since. Nowadays, it seems, you know, the startup uh, kind of culture and phenomenon is really gaining speed now over the last five years especially. Um, what do you see is the role of these larger, you know, kind of the grandfather tech companies <laughs> that are, came about in, you know, maybe the late 90s? What do you see as their role or responsibility um, in the, the new kind of emerging startup technology uh, phenomenon? Um, I would say, first of all, the business model that we created right from day one mm -hmm. is it's already a platform for entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. right? So all the sellers, they used to be probably having a job or have an offline trading uh, company, mm -hmm. but now they are online or lots of them, they have other jobs, then they become a full-time eBay seller. Mm -hmm. So we've already made millions and millions of um, entrepreneurs already. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the things I think every platform business is already contributing, uh, how they have an impact and change the world. Yeah. Right? Uh, and the second, I think um, um, all the platform business is about um, communication. Right? So you connect different parts of the world, different people to trade or exchange goods, right? Or exchange services mm -hmm. like Uber or Airbnb. So this kind of communication and interaction is a great way to facilitate culture exchange, right? So if you think about eBay, so every second, there are 63 items sold on eBay. And out of that 63, 21 items are actually cross-border. Mm -hmm. So one third of our trades are actually already between countries, right? Among mm -hmm. countries. It's no longer within the so-called domestic market. Right. So you see the world is becoming more and more globalized. So it's about in the future, the world is really becoming flat. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great way to people in different parts of the world to understand the market demand, right? Mm -hmm. So you see globalized mind in the future. It's not people who are very siloed, right? Compartmentalized in, in terms of their culture, in terms of their thinking, their view of the world. So with this kind of communication, understanding and trading, or exchange of services, you basically made the world a better place mm -hmm. because people are more understanding, right? There's less friction in their communication or interaction, right? So you made it, the world basically a more peaceful place. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, um, I remember the Airbnb founder also said, said something, right? So if you can have someone stay in your house um, for a night, it's unlikely the next day they're gonna bomb your place. Right? So <laughs> I think it's a great way to express this. So yeah. if you have trade or exchanges of communication at the larger level mm -hmm. among different nations, the world is really going to be a better place because yeah. people are no longer stuck in their own very different value system and sure. culture. Yeah, I think that's actually, I'd never heard it looked at in that way before. But I think, it's, uh, I think it's a great way to look at these technologies and what they're doing. Of course, they're having economic and financial impacts for individuals and yeah. for economies and in different places around the world. But I hadn't considered that, and it is a huge benefit. And like you say, I think it's really important that 
as we develop as a you know, kind of global society, not only do we send goods from one place to another, but we send ideas, we send exactly. our thoughts, we send understanding. Yeah. Because as you said, the, the more you understand that people, at the end of the day, are really very similar to you and your friends and all that kind yeah. of stuff, the less likelihood there will be for, for conflict. And I think we all, most of us, want to see that avoided, yeah. right? And your question, like how it facilitates innovation, right? Mm -hmm. Innovation is basically disruption and also as well as new ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So when you exchange among different value system and culture, you see lots of disruption, right? You basically look at other people's idea, you feel shocked mm -hmm. how they think, the way they structure, and what kind of things the market demands. So this brings you new perspective and make you think about new solutions, mm -hmm. right, to handle these. Yeah. Um, because if I'm looking at domestic market, probably my way is always like this, right? Mm -hmm. I want to sell or trade. If, if from other parts of the world, they may look at it and say, okay, can we use our underutilized capacity yeah. or resources? So they offer a new perspective solution looking at the same old problems. Mm -hmm. So this facilitates innovation as well. And that's a good point. And I, I wanted to ask you about that because it is in the kind of times that we're living in right now and the technology that's emerging and the, you know, you mentioned Airbnb and Uber before, these really are disruptive companies and services, disrupting the hotel industry, disrupting yeah. the taxi industry. We know Uber is encountering lots of problems all over yeah. the world. Um, but this is what's going on. And what seems to be happening is that the, the rate of disruption is increasing and the time that it takes to disrupt is decreasing, mm -hmm. right? So whereas before, maybe 20 years ago, it took 20, 10, 20, 30 exactly. years. Now a disruptive company can emerge and five years later, they can completely dominant yeah. and dominate the global industry for their product or service. Yeah. So as a, you know, and I, I smile when I say this because it's not like eBay has been around since the 1900s, but as yeah. an established, you know, foundational tech company, how does eBay view um, disruption, you know, from, from other companies, other services in, in the technology world? F and before you answer, for, for example, a lot of tech companies will keep, you know, have two approaches. They'll have one approach where they try to, you know, be honest about the disruption that's going on and keep their pul their finger on the pulse yeah. and then try to react. And of course, then other companies try to absorb, you know, disruptors in their industry so that they can make their own product or platform better yeah. and, and move on from there. So I just wanted to get your take on how a quote unquote, you know, large company views the disruption that's going on right now yeah. in the world. Um, I mean, w what you were saying, I was just looking at the data, right? Say the top 500 companies. Mm -hmm. In the list, if you look at LVMH, right, so it took them probably less than 200 years right. to get to where they are, mm -hmm. and Coca-Cola as well, right, more than 100 years. Right. Um, so then, but if you look at Google and all these new ventures, mm -hmm. right, they get into the top 500 very easily mm -hmm. in just like 20 years. Sometimes yeah. it's even less, like 10 mm -hmm. years, right? So um, the time is becoming shorter and shorter, right? Um, but um, the thing is, are Coke or AVMH is going to be sustainable? It's less about whether they got disrupted. It's also about whether they can build an ecosystem, make them sustainable. Mm -hmm. right? So even the newcomers emerging, that doesn't mean not necessary. The old one's going to die. Sure. Or even there's no newcomers coming, the old one still m might be dying. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think for eBay is the way that we actually sustain so long in this very disruptive tech world is I think the exactly the reason that we found this platform business, mm -hmm. right? So we operate the business as an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about, it's not the supply chain business that you sell to someone. 
right? That's a very linear sure. supply chain business. What we are trying to do is already at that time you vision a network of business, right? So everyone, you connect the sellers and buyers, but you don't hold anything. You're basically building a platform for everyone to transact. Mm -hmm. And you also have an open platform for others to plug in their business, like delivery service, right? Shipping solutions, or like data analytics, right? Mm -hmm. All these things are, are API technology solutions for bulk purchasing or bulk selling, right? So all these businesses are really relying on your platform. The more open your business models are, and then the more people would be relying on your business. Then you become an ecosystem, right? So everyone will want you to be successful instead of fail because mm -hmm. their life or their economics are de really depending on you right. yourself. So I think the key is, first of all, you need to find a business model that's gonna be sustainable, that's catering the needs of the future, which is in the future, everyone's going to do be their own entrepreneurs, doing their own business, right? What you're trying to do, if you want it to be scalable big enough, you are providing infrastructure and a platform, mm -hmm. not just doing the trades or doing providing the service yourself. Right. Um, that's more sustainable than you are doing the service yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Once you're doing the service or providing the goods, there's always a chance that someone's gonna replace you right. because consumer loyalty is very low mm -hmm. right now. But if you're a platform business, it basically, once it reaches a certain tipping point, the large becomes larger, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's less chance it's gonna be filled mm -hmm. because everyone's contributing, everyone's relying on you. And also, once everyone's on you, it's hard for them to migrate to a new platform, right? Mm -hmm. And a platform, it needs critical mass to achieve success. Mm -hmm. So you've already established a critical mass. How you make sure that you, you just make the ecosystem better, grow it larger, then you are more sustainable, right? Mm -hmm. So so that's why when we look at our platform, there are a couple of things very important. It's really about stability, right? Um, so there would be disruptions coming up, but it could be in different verticals, right? If they are going to be a similar platform like us, they need to do as good as we are, not if not even better, right? Mm -hmm. So what we're looking at our core is really, once your platform be become big enough, it's really about your man managing a nation, right? we're taxing, we're charging, it's like a tax. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is how you build a nation, you build an infrastructure base better, so everyone's happier and making more money. Mm -hmm. You're like growing your GDP, right? So, and also at the same time, how you make them feel safe and trust, because when you manage a critical mass, there are all kinds of things going on. Like mm -hmm. there are trillions and millions of transactions going on, how you make sure that you have data security, right? People's privacy, like sure. the, what's that company? Um, that dating service, having an affair. Oh, uh, Ashton, Ashley Madison. Uh, Ashton Madison, <laughs> yes. So how you make sure the data is secured, yeah. right, protected. And also, if there's trillions of transactions, there's lots of fraudulent fraud, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or like um, counterfeits, right? Or even terrorism. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure those black swan type of um, things got prevented way before had? Mm -hmm. This is the core of how you manage a platform and make it bigger and sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think this is our way of dealing with disruption, right? Yeah. So you have a business model, which is already pretty looking forward in 20 or 40 years, but at the same time, how you may make sure that your platform business is still growing to critical mass instead of reversing and shrinking. Sure, sure. Now, I, I have to ask you this question. It's not what I immediately wanted to ask you after yeah. what you just said, 
But I, I have to ask because we had uh, Bobby Lee of uh, BTC China, which is now BTCC, which is a Bitcoin exchange, yeah. on the show um, a couple weeks ago. And of course, there's a lot of hype around Bitcoin. A lot of people are very hopeful about Bitcoin. And some of the, you know, a lot of people often say it's not going to reach critical mass until a major online retailer pushes it and or backs yes. it. So Amazon, eBay, you know, whomever else. Is Bitcoin at all on eBay's radar? And would, you know, would they ever consider trans offering that as a, a form of transaction? I don't know, really. <laughs> so it's not on your radar. Yes, I, I don't think so. But um, Bitcoin is very innovative, mm -hmm. right? Way of it's basically um, disrupting the whole currency system, right. right? So, and I think currency is a little bit different from the way you trade. It's related to all the banking system, mm -hmm. uh, which are the monetary policies, right? It's sure. like within the power or grip of all the governments, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. um, I think they're dealing with much more powerful and larger oh, sure. uh, conventional. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. They're yes. coming up against a lot yeah. of forces from a, a exactly. variety of different areas. Yeah. I just had to ask because it is often said, I mean, Bitcoin, as you say, is, you know, kind of, it, well, it is a, a currency. And, you know, some of the biggest resistance it will encounter is probably from central banks, governments, yeah. and large, larger institutions like that. Um, but, of course, it is also used as a form of transaction. Yeah. So from that angle a lot of people think well you know you never know if so and so says we transact in bitcoin maybe that will you know have the average joe yeah. say oh why don't i pick this up because at the moment it's still very fringe it's you know for you know f frankly mostly people trade in bitcoin speculatively yeah. right not there's not a lot of transactions actually going on i would uh, say it's more like a human evolution right so mm -hmm. like this type of evolution is definitely going to happen. Right. I bet the currency format is going to be changed in the future. Mm -hmm. But whether it is Bitcoin, we don't know. Who knows? Right? Yeah. There's lots of things going on. Sure. There's lots of coincidence, luck going mm -hmm. on, whether something could reach tipping point. Even they are brilliant mm -hmm. concept, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think definitely they're going to contribute to the evolution, yeah. right? But are they going to be the final formats of it? Not necessary. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's another thing that's super exciting. But going back to uh, what we were talking about, disruptive companies for a second, another aspect of your career and of your professional life is in angel investing, Yes. right? So, um, and of course, a lot of our listeners will be very interested in to hear your insights in that regard. But when we're talking about disruptive companies, and it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and of course, not every startup is going to be quote-unquote disruptive. I mean, there'll be many different ways of measuring success for yeah. a, a new startup. But you're on the scene here in Shanghai and in greater China, and you kind of have your pulse on what's going on. Do you see many you know, exciting companies that are being born here that could fall in that description that you know, we were just talking about that could be you know, disruptive of a certain industry or that show a lot of promise globally as or, or domestically? Um, I would say yes and no. Mm -hmm. um, well, it depends on how you define disruption, right? Yeah. So if you're thinking if you're thinking about something like Uber and Airbnb, I didn't I don't think I've seen any of them. Mm -hmm. um, but disruption can go on at different levels, sure. right? For example, I just invested a, a nutrition product company called Viva Nutrition, right? Mm -hmm. So it's about um, they still produce nutrition products, but the way they deliver it and also the concept they have 
is quite disruptive, mm-hmm. right? So they don't just focusing on the, the traditional nutritions. They are more focused on functional nutritions, or they want to change the malnutrition, right? Or j- change the trust problems here mm-hmm. in China about nutrition products. Mm-hmm. Lots of them are still manufactured overseas, packaged here. Or the way they deliver is through lots of social media. They did crowdfunding, right? They did crowd um, buying, marketing, mm-hmm. and they have like lots of key opinion leaders to help them broadcast that idea. They do lots of offline events or social activity to engage the buyers. They pass along lots of knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Educate the, the 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 people who buy nutrition products about why you are using them. How do you identify it's good or not? They do lots of podcasts as well, right? Mm-hmm. They communicate actively to their customer. So I would say not necessary. The format of nutrition concept is disruptive. Right. Is you're still selling nutrition product, mm-hmm. but the way you're doing it, uh, for example, the platform you're leveraging, are you selling online or offline? Are you selling through WeChat, uh, mobile, mm-hmm. or you're selling traditional channels? The way you communicate with customer is more like marketing, advertising, or you engage them in a conversation. Right. These are very disruptive, right? right? These are the things that we see when we look at venture. I actually don't look at. I don't imagine I would find one thing similar to Uber and Airbnb mm-hmm. because that requires lots of luck. Sure. And also, I'm not a top angel investor. Right. Usually, the best ideas go to the celebrity investors. <laughs> right, right. And also, I don't think I have that large pool of money mm-hmm. to bet on that. A hundred companies right? so and have five yes. turn out to so be. So my investment strategy will be a little bit different. Sure. It's more about okay. I'm a very cautious angel investor. Right. Mm-hmm. So I look at things has a very high certain of survival and mm. a success. But the success is not necessarily like big success, big fail. But right, have a higher chance of being successful. And they have their value of disrupting the supply chain or business model in one way or another. Yeah. I like that. And I think I think that's a very good point because I think young entrepreneurs can get caught up in trying to come up with a company or an idea that is, you know, where the platform or the service is inherently disruptive. Like if enough people use yeah. this, then it's disruptive. But you just made an excellent point in saying that you can take, a, you know, pr- you know, a, a, a traditional industry, a traditional product, traditional service, and you can change the way that that service or that product, for example, speaks or engages with their the the consumer. And of course, the um, the consumer that's emerging now, as you mentioned, is increasingly mobile, and you know, and preferences are constantly changing. So if you can figure out better ways to communicate with them, engage them, things like that, yeah. then that can be a great competitive advantage. Yeah. And you can take, you know, it doesn't matter if you're selling shampoo or crackers or yeah. whatever, you can take market share exactly. away from people that are doing that and yeah. become a disruptive yeah. company in that industry. I would say disruption. People sometimes exaggerate, right? Sure, so whether sure. the idea is uh, disruptive or not. Disruption sometimes is very hindsight, mm-hmm. right? You look at successful company, they've already been successful, then you look at it, you say it's disruptive. Right. But beforehand, I would doubt when people start their business, probably they only start with a very simple drive, mm-hmm. which is to solve the pain point, mm-hmm. right? I cannot find a taxi. It's very painful to live in a hotel. Sure. I, don't, I don't enjoy the experiences. Yeah. And they, they look for a solution. They mm-hmm. start with something small, but also they become ambitious once they see different challenges they didn't stop, right? Mm-hmm. I would say Uber wouldn't become disruptive if they see the fire back from the government or the taxi drivers. If they stop, right? So this is going to be too hard. Yeah, We're not going to do I it. I think they pick a battle and they think what they're doing is worthwhile and mm-hmm. they actually follow the cause and the vision of it. That's very disruptive. Yeah. Right? So yeah, and it's interesting. You, you're you right. Disruption is kind of a catchphrase these days, as are so many in, in kind of the startup and tech world. 
But I, I, I do think you're right, and I think that the things that are most important perhaps in, in, in kind of in the attitude of an entrepreneur there's two things, and these you do often hear a lot, but we can we can mention them here again. One is tenacity, as you were just mentioning, uh -huh. to the, the fact that you're going to meet those challenges that you encounter, and of course you have to expect to uh, to, to encounter them, uh, and then keep going forward. But the other thing is not to keep going forward with what you had in mind previously, mm. to constantly be listening, assessing, and and gleaning feedback from your market, your customers, your whomever, so that. You can continue to push, but it's not in vain. You're pushing with a renewed focus. You're pushing with yeah. a, a somewhat altered version of what you are offering yeah. so that it, as much as possible, matches what the customers or whatever industry, whatever you know, group of people you're, you're trying to sell to can, accepts it with ever more uh, vigor yeah. every time you try. Yeah. You know? And, of course, it doesn't always work out. But for those that it does, we do look back on hindsight and say, wow, they're they're disruptive. The thing is, uh, when people look at uh, the, the entrepreneur pursuit, right? So mm -hmm. lots of people only look at business model. They look at a business when they want to find a brilliant business model. Mm -hmm. But business model at the end of the day is a means, right? Okay. But so, so when you think about you want to do something entrepreneur, it's always start with the course or the vision that you want to do. Mm -hmm. What kind of problem you're trying to solve. And you can adopt different business models to get there. It's just different ways, right? So if an entrepreneur have that in mind, you always start with what you want to achieve, mm -hmm. which is the end goal of what kind of pain point you're going to solve, what kind of impact, or what kind of forces you're going to drive. Then you will be very um, willing to, right, to change your business model from time to time. Mm -hmm. So when you're assessing companies, maybe they're pitching you as part of your AngelVest network, maybe they sent you a pitch, I don't know exactly how it works, but what are the three primary uh, factors that you look at when you're assessing a company? With the one you just mentioned, you said they had a, a very interesting business model or how they were actually going yeah. to engage a customer and sell their product. Is there a standard, like this is my one, two, three, this is what I look at when yeah. you're looking at uh, companies that are pitching you? I, th I think there is, right? Mm -hmm. First of all, I look at a pitch and I would say, is it simple enough for me to understand, right? So like, if they cannot explain their business idea, in a very simple way, mm -hmm. I think it's never gonna work, right? So like, even with the most complicated, disruptive things, you need to be able to deliver in a very concise and simple manner, mm -hmm. so everyone can understand what exactly is the venture is trying to do. Mm -hmm. And lots of people have very complicated pitch deck. It's like, after reading 30, 40 pages, you have absolutely no idea. It sounds like they are a bunch of genius, but, but I'm not sure what they're trying to achieve here, right? right? right. So business is actually very straightforward the pain point you're going to achieve through what kind of means, right? Mm -hmm. And how you differentiate. And the second is, I always look at team, right? So like, whether the team is good enough. Mm -hmm. It's all about people who's going to deliver. And the third is about finances. If a company, because you are a for-profit company, business model, if yeah. you don't have in good financial um, roadmap in your head, mm -hmm. I doubt that you would know exactly where you're going, right? right. And as an extension of that question, of the people, the entrepreneurs, the teams that do pitch you, that you, that you see, is there one of those three that's most often lacking? Like, is there somewhere where you see a lot of people that, you know, entrepreneurs that are pitching you, they kind of fall down on? Um, I think the first one, actually. 
They make it very complicated. Right. Like uh, they, f they feel like, okay, I have this genius idea, right? So it's like you confuse people. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the best way is even you have a very confusing concept, like the Einstein, right? You need to summarize into something that very straightforward and concise and it can communicate because as an entrepreneur, you're a salesperson at the end of the day. You're yeah. selling your visions, you're selling your business models, right? You're selling to investors, to your consumers, to your suppliers, mm -hmm. to everyone, to your employees. If you cannot explain your idea in a very simple, concise way, but how would you imagine you sell, right? What you are selling. To anybody, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Um, do you notice any major differences between foreign entrepreneurs that are operating in China and domestic, like local Chinese entrepreneurs? Yeah. And if so, what are they? Um, I would say there's a pros and cons. Um, in Andrews, we actually see lots of foreign, because the setting of Andrews, right? We see lots of foreigners coming in pitch. Mm -hmm. um, well, I would say like the foreigners do things in a much more professional way. They're much more organized because they come from a market, their background, everything's very structured and well established, mm -hmm. right? So the, the way of their doing is already pre-set up mm -hmm. by the background they had. I would say that that's one. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, I usually we hesitate mm -hmm. to invest in a company that only has foreigners. I probably personally would never invest in a company that only has a team of foreigners, mm -hmm. right? So because, like I said, you don't know about China enough. Mm. It's about what kind of people you recruit. Can you read their mind? Mm. Right? Like how you motivate them? Uh, can you deal with all the nitty gritty or nasty things that are going to happen um, in your startup? Right? Mm. You're going to have a splitting shareholder structure, right? Changing employment, right? Like people going to quit or leave or sue you, whatever. I I would have doubts in terms of whether they can deal with kind of things if mm -hmm. they don't have a local partner. Mm -hmm. um, um, and also, um, but I do see the concept they're bringing, right? I wouldn't say it's disruptive, but it's very, it's very niche, right? right? Because, because they don't understand much about mass market. In China, we call it diaosi. I don't know how to translate, but it's very mass market about, in China, if it wants to be successful, it's always about third tier, fourth tier, because that's the real Chinese demand and consumer market right. is. What you're seeing in Ch Shanghai is not the real China, uh -huh. right? It's gonna, it's not gonna scale. Right. So, but we see lots of sexy concepts coming from foreigners, right? Mm -hmm. Because they look at developer market, they see something interesting, and they want to bring it China. Mm -hmm. I would say sometimes we would actually invest because it's definitely gonna be successful in small scale in mm -hmm. niche market, right? But not necessarily it's going to scale or get listed. Mm -hmm. But uh, but we, when we look at the actual strategy, it's probably gonna be bought out by foreign companies because right. it's well organized, it's a very good PNL, right? Everything's gonna be structured and trustworthy and a well-run company. Mm -hmm. It's a good starting point for acquisition targets. Right. Um, but local players are sometimes because they understand the market better, right? I would be more willing to invest in um, an entrepreneur, not necessarily with my background, because probably they know more about mass market, right? Mm -hmm. they, they're not necessarily so well educated, right. have the MBA in mind, but they really understand the market because the consumers they're targeting, the pain point they're trying to solve are people similar to them, right. Right, to their own needs. Yeah. And they know how to deal with people like them, right? Mm -hmm. who are local, uh, local educated, local mindset, what right. motivates them. 
Right. They so know how they want to see things, how they want th things exactly. should be organized, exactly how yeah. to deliver the solution they're providing. And they're hungry enough, yeah. right? So they don't have the very high pay, mm -hmm. um, like million dollar type of like opportunity, private equity, venture capital opportunity waiting for them in 10 years, right? right. So they are very hungry of getting there. So y you probably need that, that, right? And also this is something that we see lacking foreigners coming to China. Now China to them is more like, I want to say like digging, uh, finding gold, a gold rush, right? Uh -huh. But more like they, they think, okay, Chinese, they have lots of money, right? Willing to invest in ventures. Mm -hmm. Let's come and try. If I'm going to fail, I'm going to go back and find a good job, live my middle class life, right? right? So you don't see lots of hungry or like the failure to, the, the, you're cutting all your road back, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't see that kind of like fearless and also drive or mm -hmm. hunger. I find also, and this is something I've noticed, is that, as we said earlier, the startup phenomenon all over the world has, of course, there's lots of great things coming out of it, but it's also attracting people that just want to be involved because it's like cool and hip, uh -huh. and yeah. not, not just for that <laughs> reason, but that's a big motivator. Yeah. You know, they're smart, they're mo you know, they want to change the world and make exactly. money and stuff, but they also like, oh, I want to work in an office that has like, you know, sushi for the thing. Yeah. I want, I want that vibe, and that's cool. I don't, I don't begrudge them for that, but I do notice that in China, the entrepreneurs that I've met and seen, that's not huge on their priority list. Like as you were just saying, yeah. they just want to make something that works, yes. and they will work all hours of the night to get it done. Yeah. And for them to eat ramen noodles every day, that's actually not <laughs> exactly. a huge change from their normal yeah. life, right? Yeah. So we hear these stories uh, in, in the, you know, coming from the West, like, oh yeah, I had to live, you know, three of us lived in, in one room in the apartment and we ate noodles yeah. every day. The Chinese counter entrepreneur, that's how that's they life, have always yes. been living. So it's not, as you were saying, it's not like, you know, they're used to kind of that hardship and they're hungry mm -hmm. and they're used to that grind. And then of course you combine that with, again, the, the entrepreneurial spirit of Chinese and, and the, the the opportunity that they sense, yeah. you know, I, I, I notice that when I look at the two I met some here. of the entrepreneurs from the Silicon Valley, right? After mm -hmm. their C round or A round funding, right? They immediately moved to downtown San Francisco right, office. Right, right. And the top floor was a huge, um, with the windows on the roof, and then they, they turned that part into a bar, right? So it's, I guess it's part of their recruiting strategy because if we want to recruit nerds, right? Like basically booths and also cool right, places right, right. and having parties would be would interesting. But I think these are not the things that the Chinese entrepreneur would do, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever money they get, they would actually be really investing in the business. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I, I wouldn't say biased, like either could actually work, right? Mm -hmm. So like it depends on what kind of culture you are what kind of people you're trying to attract sure sure and I, I think both will produce amazing companies but being here on the ground in China it is pretty clear difference between the two kind of mentalities or attitudes of the two groups of entrepreneurs but if we can extend that a little bit and look at larger picture obviously there's lots going on the Chinese uh, tech industry these days in kind of the non-startup realm yeah. or older startups you know we look at Alibaba we look at Tencent we look at Baidu these these huge Chinese tech companies that interestingly and not surprisingly once you begin to understand China a little bit you know, I, I often think the rest of the world was happy to accept Facebook as the social network, you know? So France or 
Canada or wherever, they're like, oh, okay, someone, doesn't matter what country they developed it in, it's in our language, so fine, we'll use it this way. But China has a, such a strong independent attitude mm -hmm. combined with uh, a very uh, unique way of wanting to do things a certain way yeah. and wanting things to work precisely how they want it to work, how they want it to look and feel and all that kind of yeah. stuff for the society and culture that is China. Um, so these huge tech companies have, uh, have grown up and have been very successful. So what do you see as both, we've talked about the mentality and attitude of entrepreneurs here. Yeah. Now these companies have gotten so big. What are their, um, how do you see their global expansion panning out? Because we talked about why Chinese entrepreneurs can be so successful in China, all the different factors involved. But on the flip side, how do you see that transition happening where the large Chinese tech companies go global? Do you think what was their strength in China will be a weakness as they go abroad, or how do you see that playing out? Uh, I think what you were saying is exactly right, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the reason why there's, you see, like Facebook are adopted in all, most of the English-speaking countries, mm -hmm. right? So the, you don't see a barrier because basically the language is the same, the culture can be easily accepted, mm -hmm. it's similar. But Chinese, it's a very different, right? We speak a different language. How many people in here in China actually speak English, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the, the language is one thing. And the second, the market itself is big enough mm -hmm. to make sense right. for a separate entity or venture mm -hmm. for this market, right? It's 1.3 billion people or even more now. It's one-fifth of the population. Yeah. It's definitely worth it. That's why you see those companies are, it's hard. Uh, of course, there's barrier to entry, but mm -hmm. even we have international company in China it's hard for them to win. It's exactly the same reason why these companies are having a hard time expanding overseas. Because yeah. if you're selling goods, right, it's relatively easy. You mm -hmm. just need to understand what kind of goods they want and you manufacture it. But the things in internet, you're not just selling goods, you're offering service. And service is all about lifestyle. Lifestyle is all about culture, right? Culture is all about your value system. And these things, it's hard to grasp, mm -hmm. right? I would say it probably takes another at least five to ten years for a Chinese company to be really globalized mm -hmm. um, because uh, we've already seen the cases, right? So the, it's the same case of foreign companies expanding China. Lots of them fail. It's mm -hmm. because not just the language. It's about the value system, the culture, understanding the market. Yeah. And also your willingness to adapt, right, to the local culture, flexible enough once you become so big to adapt to the local culture. Mm -hmm. It, this is exactly happening with Chinese ventures, especially in the service or social or internet sectors, mm. because adopting to a culture or value system is very difficult. And because they've already become so big, right, it's hard for them to be flexible enough to, to change. Right. right? Um, so do you travel to other you know, tech or startup hubs very often, Silicon Valley or London or yes. Tel Aviv and stuff like that? Do you, what, what differences do you notice? And we talked about how, you know, perhaps startups in Silicon Valley, as soon as they get their funding, they, you know, do the whole <laughs> amazing office and all this kind of stuff. Are there any other, like, really palpable differences in any regard between the startup scene here and that in, uh, in other countries? Uh, I think the motivation is slightly different, um, right? In Silicon Valley, it's more about we're going to take over the world, change the world, right? right. They're dreaming something bigger, right? Sometimes it could be like very, um, not necessarily fluffy, but like very, uh, lots of dreams going on, right? Mm -hmm. So like everyone dares to dream, right? right. They, they actually uh, uh, they feel inspired to dream. 
But in China, people are more practical in terms of entrepreneur, right? They want to find something, a solid solution to solve a problem, mm -hmm. and then they can scale the business. You see lots of this. Yeah. Right? So um, I think it's also related to the infrastructure or the investors, whether they value this or not, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in Silicon Valley, it's more globalized investors. They actually want to look for the dream type of things that are gonna change the world, right? Yeah. But in China, the investors are more practical. They look at return on investment immediately. Yeah. They want a healthy portfolio that's gonna give them 20 times return or what, mm -hmm. right? Um, like London, I think it's emerging as well, right? Before in, in Britain, in UK, you hardly see lots of entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. but now you see many, many emerging yeah. there as well. Mm -hmm. But also, once they get money, right, they, they get an office in Mayfair <laughs> and yeah. then having parties as well. I have a friend who actually did something um, in London, in UK, and got uh, 200 million second round, right? So, like, but it's uh, pretty big. Yes, it <laughs> is, right? It's a, but, and you can tell he was saying basically, you see a burgeoning. Uh, community mm -hmm. in London actually they're doing startups right yeah. and they are not just looking at UK itself because the market is too small yeah they're looking at all the English speaking countries mm -hmm. right they're trying to you see the culture and the impact of platform business not just in Silicon Valley in China but also in Europe as well yeah um, and I know you know since living in China one, one of the things that obviously all startup scenes and communities benefit from is government support and of course, they're hung up by government regulations in various jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So you were just talking about, you know, someone in London. Well, that's great. You have a market of, you know, whatever, 40 million, 50 million people in the UK. But then if you want to go to France, if you want to go to Germany, if you want to go to the US, new regulations, new all this kind of stuff. Uh, and what's, I guess, a benefit of China, you referenced the size of the market here earlier. It's enormous and yeah. the internet penetration is growing every day. And of course, the middle class is really you know, coming into its own. So, you know, I, I really, and I really see in the next five, 10 years, like a, an enormous boom of entrepreneurship in, in China. And because of the size of the market here and because of the different variables that exist to support entrepreneurship and business, I see it, you know, them be, being in a good uh, situation, a good footing to be competitive abroad should they so choose to go to go there of course many of them you know they may never make that choice because maybe they don't need to or don't want to or it's mm -hmm. too much hassle but what i wanted to ask is for example i know in in shortage is like a, a hot center for startups in uh, in london at the moment um and you know there's big press when the government decides to turn an old warehouse into like a mm -hmm. co-working office space mm -hmm. or subsidized yeah. uh, working space in China, they build literally cities that are devoted to yeah. technology, right? So you could go to Dalian, you could go to Beijing, Tianjin, and they have so-and-so tech city. And it's like an enormous space with all sorts of offices and you know lots of government subsidi uh, yeah. subsidies and stuff like that. Do you think that's a big part of either the current success or what could be success in the future for Chinese entrepreneurs is that they get yeah. there's so much support? Definitely. I think the Chinese government are fully aware, right? Yeah. To sustain the seven to eight percent growth, you're not just relying on infrastructure investment or right. exports. Um, no longer the state-owned enterprises. It's yeah. really about small and media enterprises. These are the vitality mm -hmm. of the economy, right? So, but how you build the pipeline of it is basically you need to have people become entrepreneurs and be engaged in the private sector. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so this is why it's actually on the roadmap or the, most of the government trying to build infrastructure and provide tax haven or like um, funding, right, for yeah. those entrepreneurs. And I think this is the part of the good side of the Chinese structure, which is whatever is vocalized at the top is going to be executed very well, right? right? right. At every level. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm very 100% supportive uh -huh. of the current policy. They're trying to facilitate entrepreneurs, right? Mm. Uh, and I think exactly the government support, like the US back then, innovation actually comes from the regulation and policy and also support at a higher level, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, uh, I just, again, the scale in China always amazes me. So whether it's the scale of government support, whether it's the scale of internet users, whether it's, you yeah. know, all this stuff, it's just like, oh my God, I mean, it's, it's enormous compared to most other markets in the world, or maybe all of the markets. It's like UK at that time, they're trying to expand the whole world. It's because I think the queen, right, or king at that time, just basically think that we're a small country with 60, 70 million, like back then, even smaller. Right. With that much little population, what can you do, right? You need to expand your territory and be more open, right? Yeah. So like increase your commonwealth territory. Sure. The final question about the Chinese market I want to ask you is, living in China, I mean, we get to interact with the products of Chinese tech on a daily basis, whether it's Taobao or JD or WeChat or Baidu or any of these things. It really seems that adoption here uh, is much quicker than in other markets I've lived in the world. So for example, WeChat is like this phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? I mean, w when we go back to, well, I'm sure when you travel, when I go back to my, my home and my friends in Canada, always look at things like WhatsApp and, <coughs> and Twitter yeah. and things like that and think, well, this is archaic, yeah. you know, because WeChat does so much and you, we're kind of preaching the WeChat gospel, like, you just got to get WeChat it's so much better than all this stuff, yeah. we can keep in touch. Um, but in, in China, you know, something like WeChat emerges and adoption is very, very rapid. But what's even more impressive is that, and again, this, this ref goes back to your platform comments, but WeChat will launch storefronts. WeChat will launch mm. banking services. We, WeChat will launch blah, 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 all these different services. Yeah. And, you know, if in the case of banking, they launch it one day and the next week, a tremendous amount of people have, for example, put deposits yeah, in or something like exactly. that. Whereas you really can't see that happening in the West. Like if Twitter said, hey, we're going to yeah. accept deposits, like you would think like, oh, they'd really have to build and cultivate that market and it would take yeah. time and stuff like that. But in China, it just, and that can be good and bad, of course, yeah. because the, the quicker people adopt something, they can, they can yeah. drop it as well. But do you notice that? And if so, what do you think the reason for that is? Uh, I think WeChat is a very special case. Mm -hmm. It's built by Tencent, right? Tencent right. is already pretty established. Sure. And I think what they're doing is they're disrupting themselves, the QQ, right? So mm -hmm. it was on PC and they basically tried to migrate everyone and just let them adopt WeChat. Mm -hmm. um, so because they're already pretty established with all the banking and also gaming, right? And all these e-commerce back then solutions that they can actually use that as a starting point, a top of the funnel to expand those business. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they're starting new sure, banking, sure. right? So the infrastructure is already there. So what they're trying to do is they try to be on top of the funnel. It's like your mobile real estate. When you look at WeChat, they're not just saying I'm building uh, a chatting app, right? They're more like building a top of funnel, mm -hmm. right? The top of mind, when you start using mobile, they want WeChat to be the entry point. So the positioning was different, right? WhatsApp, when they start, is about I'm building a chat app. Mm -hmm. WeChat, when they start, they're thinking about not just building a 
a chat platform. They're thinking about building a platform that's on top of a mind, that's the entry point of your mobile device. Mm -hmm. So the starting point is totally different. That's mm -hmm. why the evolving trajectory is different. Mm -hmm. And aside from WeChat, do you yeah. think the Chinese market generally adopts new services, new tech quickly, or is that? Um, I think that's about the same, actually. Really? Yeah. But the, the, what you perceive is the Chinese adopt them much faster. It's largely because we have little legacy. Right. So That's when you point. look at the mobile phones back then, I don't mm -hmm. think people have lots of mobile phones. That's why you look at everyone's using smartphone. Right? Um, all the migrant workers to Shanghai, they don't have a laptop, they don't have PC, mm -hmm. but they immediately have a leap forward, right? Adopting a smartphone. Everyone's on smartphone. Mm -hmm. uh, That's exactly because they don't have legacy, right? They can ad adopt and change to new technology immediately. Yeah. That's what we have. It, it really amazes me. and. W Last point on that, the Chinese market, but I remember, I think in 2009, e-commerce on Singles Day, yeah. November 11th, right? Yes. Yeah. E-commerce transaction value, I think, was like $8 million yeah. or something, nothing. Yeah. And I think this past year, it was in the hundreds of billions, yeah. or like just like an absurd increase yeah. in, in value over, what, you know, five, five mm. years. Yes. Um, so anyway, that's an amazing story, and I'm sure everyone yeah, listening is relatively familiar with it. I think the Chinese e-commerce, they're extremely good at creating, creating. festivals, right? Like shopping, oh. right? <laughs> Reasons it's to buy a lot of now stuff. Now you have double 12. I don't know what is that, right? Like a 12, yeah. 12, 12. Never you have that, that as well, yeah. But it, it, it is, like you mentioned a good point in the legacy uh, point, because, you know, my I have Chinese friends and, and things like that, and... You know, I grew up going to the grocery store with my mom or going to Costco or all this kind yeah. of stuff, and you buy this stuff. And now, you know, most people have mobile phones. Most people have iPads or tablets or something like that. And when you want something, it maybe may aside from a dinner out, you're just sitting on your couch and you open Dianping <laughs> yeah. or something yeah. like that, and you order, or JD or, or, or yeah. whatever it is, or Lama, and you buy a bunch of stuff and it arrives. Doesn't matter if it's food for dinner or yeah. you know clothing or whatever it is. And it's amazing the the penetration adoption rate they've got. Exactly. Um, so I want to move now. I know you've been very gracious with your time. We're we're almost done here. Um, but you've been an entrepreneur before. Yeah. Um, and that's again one of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you today because you kind of represent a number of different insights. You know, <laughs> yeah. from the investor point of view, the entrepreneurial point yeah. of view, and the quote unquote corporate point of view. Yeah. Um, a lot of, lot of young entrepreneurs in the startup community find it, I mean, there's so many things going on with your emotions, with your mentality, you know, should I do this or should I do that? And you, there's a lot to juggle. Um, as an entrepreneur, do you have any advice for people in, in, that, in that situation that I just described for balancing maybe better the responsibilities or the, the, the desires and ambitions they may have. So basically I'm asking, having gone through it yourself, what kind of advice can you give to entrepreneurs to help them along their way? Um, I think number one is know exactly why you want to do startup, right? So mm -hmm. like lots of people are not sure what they, why they want to do it, right? right. Um, because why you want to do it decides how you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. So speaking from my ex experience, it's larger I want to do this is because I, I really love design of home decor, home products. So that's why when, when I look at the different opportunities, I'm really saying, okay, I don't want to be employee. Mm -hmm. I want to be my own boss and doing something uh, by myself. Right. 
So that's why when, when I look at how I'm going to run the business, I'm not looking at funding. Although I got approached by many venture capitalists, right? So mm -hmm. they're willing to invest the money um, into my venture. But I basically said no, because once you started on that road, it's more about you're driven by scalability. Right. You're going to sell things that you don't like. You're less focused on design of products, but more about velocity of different products. An obligation to yes. investors and things yeah. like that. Um, so once you ha have a clear view of where you want to get, right? Like mm -hmm. it's basically I want autonomy and the freedom of doing the things that I love. Then I look at my funding. I basically funded it myself, right? Or from friends and family. Mm -hmm. So at that time, the, the main goal for me is really about, okay, how to have a good product and at the same time, you need to make money ASAP. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to burn money, right? right? So Because then you would have in a very stressful mode if you see your bank account is decreasing every day, right? If you're not using Ventures money. And th at that time, you probably would be pushed to actually raise funds externally. Then yeah. you will be not doing the things that you like, mm -hmm. right? Once you started using Ventures money, you have lots of investors. Basically, mm -hmm. you have lots of boss, right? Yeah. You will be like in different courses or uh, like terms, right? So um, then you will be under lots of pressure, right? So, but on the other side, if your goal is really about, I'm, I want to go IPO, I want to have venture capital money, I want to focus on scalability, then your path will be totally different. Mm -hmm. So from day one, you need to think about what a venture capitalist wants, right? They always think about scalability, they think about exit strategy. So all your structure needs to be catering that need. Mm -hmm. And from day one, probably you're, you've already going out to start selling your ideas. You probably wouldn't even start without money committed already from the venture capital. Right. So the past is very different, right? Yeah. And if you're doing social enterprise, you're really doing for the good cause. Sure. But at the same time, you need to think through, are you okay to live on very low salaries and always going to be busy, right? Mm -hmm. And can you find a sustainable business model to do the charity, yeah. right? So you need to have a very clear view what and you why, want, yeah, why you're why doing, you're doing this. it. Yes. Because I, I do, I ask that question a lot because I think it's something that entrepreneurs and really everyone grapples with a lot is decision making, mm -hmm. how to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And again, what you're talking about is what you're gut, yeah. excuse me, what you're guided by when you're making decisions. So if you don't have that clear why, why you're doing this, why you want to do this, then making those decisions will be very, very difficult, yeah. right? Because you'll always say, well, I could do this or I could do that. Exactly. But when you have the correct why in place, I guess it becomes a lot more clear, like, okay, well, this is, this is in line with, with why, why I'm doing this. That's for life as well. It's like sure. your true north, right? So once you have a value system, that basically you know exactly what kind of choices you make, right. the compromises you have. Now, I want to also ask you, having been an entrepreneur um, and having had a su successful career up to this point and I'm sure into the future, if you could speak or give some advice to your 20-year-old self, yeah. all right, what would you tell yourself? Um, I would say be more fearless. Be more fearless. Yes. I, um, although I make lots of choices, people think it's basically fearless, mm -hmm. but I think I can dare to do more. more yes. And is that because the perceived risks of doing more actually probably weren't as severe as you might have thought at the time? Um, I think the fear is really about you don't know what's going to happen, right. right? And I see the benefits of experience the unknown. It really puts you on a very fast trajectory of learning curve. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy that. So 
the only regret I have in my past life is probably I haven't done more enough, right? So right, I like that. Um, and the final final question regarding advice for the foreign entrepreneur, and we touched on this a bit earlier, that's looking to maybe come to China. Yeah. As you said, you know, they see lots of opportunity. They like they they want adventure. They want you know this whole thing that's happening here. What advice would you give to them if they're considering coming over and getting involved in entrepreneurship, startup, technology? Number one is learn Chinese. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of the people coming here, right? They're expats. They still hang out with expats. They yeah. still speak English. They uh, take yeah, Chinese. I used to be class. one of those. I'm working yeah. on it now. But they yeah. speak Chinese. They take Chinese classes once or twice a week. That's mm -hmm. not good enough, right? Yeah. So if you really want to be here, have a full immersion experience. You need to adopt the value and the culture, mm -hmm. and you need to fully embrace it and yeah. starting from the language because. I always think language is the fundamental of culture and how people think, For sure. right? how people communicate. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, I learned that lesson. I, I lived in Japan for a year when I was 18 years old. And I, I, when I first got there, I thought, man, everyone's so weird. And like they, I can't understand why they act the way they act. And then once you get the language and once you can communicate with people, then it clicks. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, it's not so... Yeah. nonsensical it's not so irrational yeah. anymore it still might be a bit quirky yeah especially in the case of japan but um but you do that that level of understanding mutual understanding is able you're able to establish that and i couldn't agree more i think that's especially if you are working on something that you're gonna the china is going to be your market yeah. my god you really better understand if you're going to be competing with the people we talked about earlier who yeah you know, the, the ramen noodle who just work, work, work and <laughs> don't care about the fancy office yeah. or the startup culture or anything. Yeah. They're just working for it. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask you a, a little bit of on the personal side of things. Shanghai is a very busy city. Yeah. You know, the, the, the working environment you work in and the industries you operate in, hustle and bustle, lots of energy, lots going on. What do you do to unwind? What do you do to get away, to unplug, to relax? I Other than travel, I do travel. <laughs> uh, I uh, when I tra even when I travel, I love outdoor mm -hmm. things. I do marathon. I run a lot. Um, I do scuba diving. Uh, I like hiking. Mm -hmm. um, I like play golfing, right? Uh, tennis as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think I enjoy just being active. active. I think yeah. um, this is the thing that lots of people think is um, is a myth, right? When they feel tired at work, they feel like they want to go home and just relax and watch yeah. TV. W what your body needs is really a different status. Yeah. So you need to switch into that, right? Mm -hmm. And I do yoga as well. So it's a great way to meditate, right, mm -hmm. in the morning and then be active. It's a very different lifestyle from you, very, you sitting in the office, having meetings, discussion, right? Yeah. So your body needs a different status to feel energized. It's not they need to be relaxed, yeah. right? Just I think we can tack that on to the advice question as well because I think, <laughs> I think it's... Uh, Fantastic advice, but it gets overlooked so often, especially with young startup people. Yeah. You know, they just grind, 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 go, go, go. And they think, well, I, you know, I shouldn't take time to exercise or eat right because I should be spending time on, on my work. But yeah. I think what maybe they fail to realize some of the time is that if you, if you take the time and take care of those two things, your work will be more mm -hmm. effective. You'll have greater longevity. You'll be clearer. You'll be more creative. Yeah, you'll be more innovative coming to ideas. Right? Yeah, so yeah. most of my good ideas actually come from like when I was running or exercising. Yeah. Right? It's just your mind is so relaxed and mm -hmm. enjoy it. And then 
I would say your body is just a great receiver. Right? Yeah. So you receive, I think there's abundance of opportunities and information out there. Mm-hmm. It's just where you focus your energy on, right? So once it becomes open, you're not filtering all those things through mm-hmm. your own thinking, right? You become more receptive of different ideas and then you become more innovative. 100%. I love that. It's kind of like the meditation approach, right? <laughs> like with, instead of putting your filter on your thoughts, you just remove it yeah. and see what comes in, mm-hmm. right? Speaking of which, I'm a, I'm a huge uh, nerd for morning routines. Yeah. Do you have any particular morning routine? You I mentioned do. meditation. I do. Can you share it? Um, so when I wake up, I usually do meditation mm-hmm. for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use Headspace. Uh, it's a great app. I recommend everyone download it. Mm-hmm. Um, even sometimes you cannot focus very well, but it clears your mind yeah. and makes you conscious of what matters to you. Mm-hmm. And then um, I usually exercise. Uh, for 30 minutes mm-hmm. I do running or do a little bit yoga or sometimes golfing for an hour mm-hmm. I guess very early uh, 5.30 to 6 nice. and then um, I would take a shower and then I always eat breakfast right? I think it's critical for breakfast I always eat the same thing 6 egg whites scrambled with salmon Ooh, and green tea I like tea. that fist bump <laughs> um, and I recently, my friends recommend me to eat slow carbs. Mm-hmm. Right? So I started eating lots of beans and lentils. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's what I add to my breakfast. Mm-hmm. And then I usually read Wall Street Journal, Financial Times when I eat breakfast. Mm-hmm. Or I meet people and I go to work. I like that. That's a yeah. solid solid routine. I and listen to audiobooks on my way to work. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, that actually routine very similar to my own but one of the things that stood out is you said you meditate for 10 minutes Mm -hmm. Uh, and I actually do the same and I think I got into it or maybe what kept me from getting into it was that uh, I thought meditation was sitting down for an hour and like you know trying to not think about things Um, and what it turns out you know of course there's many different types of meditation yeah but as you mentioned, in the morning, instead of hopping out of bed and having your brain just start running and be like, I got to do this, I got to do that, five minutes, 10 minutes, it doesn't have to be a huge time commitment. Yeah. It's just giving yourself a chance to level out, to be present in your day. And then once you're done with that, be, be mindful and be, you know, kind of know where your day is going, not be dragged along by your thoughts, right? Um, uh, so my book... I wrote a book about 16 weeks transformation. It's going to be published soon, I think, Uh in the coming week. Um, So the the philosophy I have is you are your habit, right? Mm. Once you can form a habit, you don't need to do lots of self-control, right? right? So your life will become much more easy. Mm -hmm. But to have a good habit, it's always start with small commitments. Lots of people think about commitments as like huge, right? I need to exercise, then I need to have one hour every, every day, and then every three every week I have three times. It's a huge commitment. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the learning I had is start with small commitments. Yeah. If you want to do meditation, don't impose very hard rule on yourself because then it will make you You'll quit. Fail. Yeah. Right? So basically you say, okay, I spend just one minute or two minutes as long as I can meditate. Mm-hmm. Once you form the routine, it's very easy to follow up and increase the quota mm-hmm. because you can see the benefits of it. Right? Yeah. You have a very good positive feedback system mm-hmm. the same as running as well at first i don't i was thinking about running an hour it takes lots of time right so the decision i made at the time is okay whenever i have time don't think too much even you're wearing a dress right so don't think about changing and everything just make sure you put on a pair of running shoes mm-hmm. and then run just go off and run for even one minute mm-hmm. ten minutes five minutes what, because once you started 
you're just going to run for half an hour or more. Yeah. I'm getting a funny image right now of you running down like Nanjing Road in a dress and sneakers. No, <laughs> I really do that, right? Because at that time I was thinking, okay, you need to change and everything, properly dress. Uh-huh. And then it increased a lot of hassle and hurdle for right. you to start running. Yeah. And then now I learn, right? Even now I start to say, oh, I want to go to driving range for golfing. Last time I was wearing a dress, right? A black mm. dress. And I was thinking I only have my golfing shoes in the car. But I think what, what matches, right? I'm just going to change the shoes and swim with my dress. Mm-hmm. So I did that and I feel very happy about it. So sure. this is how you deal with because otherwise you will be struggling with changing and that wastes lots of time. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, is it, you mentioned you you wrote a book and you're publishing a book um, and it's on the topic of kind of health and wellness. Is yeah, that right? It's about um, forming good habits right. to meet a better right. self. And I think the strategy you mentioned is one of the best strategies out there. Starting small, not trying to overdo it at once, not overwhelming yourself. What can you successfully commit to right now? And do it now. Yeah. And then as you said, you will see the benefits and you'll actually, it won't be a matter of discipline to continue them. It'll be a matter of you know, desire, you actually want to. Um, But we referenced this a bit earlier in that the kind of changing attitudes of the Chinese consumer and changing priorities. I've noticed this primarily because it's in the industry that I'm in, health and wellness, Um, but you've recently written a book about it. Do you notice, two-part question, one of the last ones, do you notice one from working in this industry that you're working in that people are more interested in these you know, techniques and habits of wellness and health and fitness because it does so dramatically improve their uh, well-being, maybe even their performance at work. Um, And also, that greater trend that's happening in China right now, I'd like to get your take on it. You, Of course, you just wrote a book addressing it, so... uh, Well, my book is not just about wellness and health being. The the theme is about personal growth. Sure. So, wellness and health being is part of of it. I kind of morphed them all into one. About career, about uh, the things you eat, right? The routine that you have, Mm -hmm. who you hang out with, your social circle, Mm -hmm. and how you go to a party, and all these different kinds of things, right? It's like different dimensions. But health and well-being is good a good deal of it right mm-hmm. so it's a great part of it um but i think people care about health and well-being mm-hmm. it's largely because they're still very ambitious and they want a better life right mm-hmm. not ambitious but they still have this personal growth drive sure. to see a better version of themselves but is it just for career or monetary purpose not necessary mm-hmm. right do you want to seem themselves more fit leaner right look greater prettier yeah. um or they want to be more elegant in the how they deal with other people, right? How they um, be more um, intelligent at work or brainstorming, dealing with in a social circle. Mm-hmm. So these are the drives of human beings. I think they always want to be better. Yeah. Right? It's like playing golf or all the sports. They just want to be better. And I see the drive of all the people here. Not necessarily they want to make huge money, but they want to see they grow every day. Mm-hmm. So this kind of hope of becoming a better person the next day is what drives us to get up and have a good life. Mm-hmm. And do you, you know, when did this become, when did this get on your radar, as it were, this sort of thinking? Um, I think it's my personal drive as well, right? So yeah. um, I feel like I w- every day I want to do a lot, mm-hmm. right? And then, uh, then I ask, what's the pers- purpose of it? I read a lot as well. Mm-hmm. I'm just very inquisitive of different things. Yeah. So I try to understand what's the motivation of it. Uh, because otherwise, my understand if you don't understand who you are, 
where your drive comes from mm -hmm. is going to drain you, right? So mm -hmm. I think really hard about what motivates human being. And I think largely it's about hope, right? Yeah. A better future, about um, you can be better than yourself. Yeah. It's always this. I, I love that. And I, like I said, I think this is the type of thinking that's really emerging in, in China right yeah. now. And it's a very exciting time to have so many people ask these questions and look at this kind of stuff. And of course, it's great that they have role models like you to help guide them on, on their respective journeys. Um, Vivi, you've been very generous with your time today, so I won't hold you any longer. Um, for anyone listening that wants to get in touch with you, maybe some bright young people want to get in touch with eBay or, or, or something like that, is there any public information that you like to put out for people to get in touch? Um, I think they can email me. Email you? Yes. Okay, and find your email yeah, in, I the can e in the ether? You know, it's just on the in, in the internet somewhere. Or LinkedIn. Or we can put it you on can easily find me on, okay, LinkedIn. on LinkedIn. Yes. Great. Well, Vivi, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a great conversation, and hopefully, uh, maybe we can do this again sometime in in the future. I enjoyed it very much. Thank okay. you as well. Thanks very much, guys. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai for everything tech from Shanghai and China. See you next time.